This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3 FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with Professor Emeritus Christopher R. Browning. Christopher is a Professor Emeritus of History and he joined me in the studio to talk about his seminal work, Ordinary Men, Reserve Police Battalion 101 and The Final Solution in Poland. He's in Melbourne for a lecture series at the Australian Centre for Jewish Civilization at Monash Caulfield. Hello. Hi. Thanks so much for coming in. My pleasure. So you are in Melbourne for a lecture series of which you'll be delivering three lectures. Uh, the first will be tomorrow night at 7.30pm. Uh, yeah, this is actually my fourth visit to Melbourne and I've taught three times at Monash and once at Melbourne Uni, uh, and at the Times at Monash, I've also given an evening lecture series alongside the class. So this will be the third set of evening lectures that I've given at Caulfield, and it's been a wonderful experience. The audience there has always just been fantastic. Mm. Yeah, I did see that you were at the Wheeler Centre as well um, a while ago, giving another lecture there. So That was part of one of the series, yes. Right, yeah. yes. Well, it's a, a really important um, thing, to, I guess, to have these public lecture series, because it gives the general public access to new ideas and research that they may not be exposed to. Um, And, of course, your career is quite prolific. Um, And I'd like to start out by situating where you came from in your scholarship um, into the the timeline of historiography of the the Holocaust. So we know that um, at the end of World War II there was kind of this um, period of silence where there wasn't a lot said necessarily about... or or deep analysis about what has happened. And a lot of people or um, Jewish people would say they weren't believed when they talked about their experience if they had been a survivor um, from a concentration camp. And it was in the late 1960s that we saw the trial of Adolf Eichmann, which really um, publicised and made the public more aware of the extent of the crimes. But, of course, we saw many trials during that period um, that were, you know, revealing what had gone on. Um, so in terms of your career and, and your scholarship, um, when did you decide to focus your attention and your life to work on this area and, um, and what really inspired you to do so? Yeah, that really came at the very end of the 60s, the beginning of the 1970s. As you said, there was a, a brief period after World War II with the what the Allies called the war crimes trials because they hadn't sorted out the different persecutory and murderous programs of the Nazis, uh, and it was all lumped together as, quote, war crimes trials or Nazi atrocities. Uh, And then we got involved in the Cold War, and interest in that more or less declined. Uh, I think Jewish survivors talked a great deal among themselves, but what they found is no one else wanted to listen for the, the 1950s. So it really became something that was not so much overt and public, but something that they learned to keep to themselves. Uh, the Eichmann trial, uh, where Jewish survivors are now brought to the witness stand as part of the trial, uh, gave them, in a sense, a, a platform uh, to tell the story, not just as Nazi atrocities, but how it was experienced by the victims. In a sense, the trial had two parts. There was the documents brought out to convict Eichmann, and what we would now call, in, in a sense, the impact phase. Uh, what did this mean to human beings where the victims got to tell their story? Uh, and that opened things up, I think, considerably for a new generation. Uh, 
I myself came to it a little bit different. A lot of my Israeli colleagues, it was the Eichmann trial. Mm. As hearing that as teenagers uh, in high school, about to go to university, that became deeply interested. Uh, My own trajectory was a bit different, uh, that I was more involved in the anti-war protest against Vietnam uh, at the end of my university career. Uh, And uh, the whole issue of... You know, how do governments, particularly since I had campaigned for Johnson in 64 against Goldwater, uh, by 68 we were involved in in this war that I thought was not just a terrible mistake, but also immoral and not justified. Uh, And how had people I considered both intelligent and good people had somehow gotten us into this, this quagmire? So my interest came a little bit more out of the American situation. Uh, but they did coincide uh, in, in the sense by the late 60s. Uh, uh, I think you had a new generation coming out that was no longer complacent about a belief in inevitable progress, about the you know undoubted uh, unchallenged virtues of the victorious powers after World War II, uh, where very clearly here you had a you know you had to beat Hitler. It was very clearly this was a war where good one of those few wars where you you knew who the good guys were yeah. and you knew they had to win. Uh, Vietnam muddied all of that. Uh, many of the colonial struggles, Algeria and so forth, muddied that for Europeans. Uh, so we were in an age of much greater uncertainty where we could begin to look at the Holocaust uh, as something that could give us insight that became important now. Uh, it wasn't just something in the past, but something that was spoken was relevant to how do governments adopt and find people to implement criminal policies. Yes, and such extreme policies. Mm-hmm. It's you know, been unprecedented in history, isn't it? That, that scale mm-hmm. of mass killing and industrialization mm-hmm. of, of killing. Yes, we, of course, genocide, unfortunately, has been with us. But this was, mm. in a sense, the case of the most advanced modern country employing all of the capabilities of a modern bureaucracy to organize, modern technology to carry out, to harness those to genocide, in a sense, put the Nazi genocide of the Jews historically in a kind of singular position as it had these characteristics that made it different than previous genocides. Yes, and in terms of uh, how the final solution, as it's termed, um, came about, there has been a long scholarly debate around this and there isn't necessarily you know the one document that proves that was the time and there's the order signed by Hitler um, there is this what what is called an intentionalist versus a functionalist debate that we hear about and things have evolved thankfully since the kind of polar ends of that um, debate but I was interested to read that you yourself um, at one point termed yourself a um, moderate functionalist in the sense that you had thought that there is this idea where um, various functionaries, Nazi functionaries, such as Adolf Eichmann and Himmler and um, various, you know, key heads of departments would anticipate the desire or or wants of Hitler and in some ways compete for um, for status and success. Uh, And in some ways the um, extreme version of functionalism is that that's how that finalist solution eventuates. Could you share with us your scholarly position on how you think um, the final solution really came to a head? Because as you say, you know, there's no doubt that Hitler had anti-Semitic views in the 1930s, but um, one would think that perhaps he didn't have a grand plan by that point. 
Yes, I think it's important to look at the convergence of different elements to how this came about and not have a kind of monocausal explanation. Uh, And quite often in history, uh, historians are divided between those that try to explain why things happened the way they did in history by the decisions that the leaders take and those leaders taking those decisions because they are realizing an ideological goal that they hold. So it's the ideas in the mind of the leader leads to the decisions they take that leads to things happening. And this is the intentionalist explanation. Yep. Things happen because leaders intend them. Uh, the other, in a sense, goes back to Marx that says, you know, men make history but seldom make the history they want or expect. That we work within all sorts of parameters that control what we do, uh, that limit the options that we have or even what we can think about as what is possible. Uh, and so these are referred to often as structuralists or functionalists. How does the system function? What are the structures within which we operate that basically set parameters around the choices that human beings make and shape those choices uh, in a very contingent way, depending what the situation is at the time, certain things will seem possible, certain decisions will be made, and therefore it's a very fluid situation that in fact evolves as situations change. So these were the two sort of extremes. What I called the ultra-intentionalist position was that Hitler knew from the very beginning he was going to do this, he waited for the time and opportunity, gave the orders as he found the key points uh, to opportune moments to do so, and we explain everything by Hitler's decision-making, and motivated by his ideology. The extreme functionalist was basically nobody made decisions, bad things happened welling up from beneath, uh, and that one thing happened after another in a kind of chaotic and haphazard way. Uh, I don't think either of those extremes is going to get us anywhere. What we have to look at is the convergence between the ideology at the top which sanctions and legitimizes and ensures that everybody understands solving the Jewish question is the goal, even if you don't know what that means. You know, when, when have you solved it? When have you gotten there? Mm. It takes the Nazis a long time to figure that out. But Hitler is always there to make sure that everyone knows the problem has not yet been solved and it's a high priority and that it must be solved. So this is going to lead to an evolution of Nazi Jewish policy. And that evolution will take place in part, as you just mentioned, as various people vying for Hitler's favor, uh, bringing to him various proposals. He is not a micromanager working from above. Uh, He is kind of at the switchboard uh, signaling red, green, or yellow traffic lights depending upon things that are brought to him and how he wants uh, to move from that point on. Uh, Ian Kershaw the great bi- wrote a great biography of Hitler and found in a mid 1930s speech one of Hitler's functionaries explaining to his audience of Nazi wannabes uh, that the good Nazi is not one who waits for an orders and instruction. He quote works towards the Fuhrer that as he anticipates what needs to be done, he understands the implications of the ideology, and he does all the things necessary to make that come about without being micromanaged from above. Uh, and this, in effect, is is the way the Nazi system worked. Uh, so you have people at the top who set the ideological priorities. You have this middle level that works towards the Fuhrer. And then you get to the bottom where you have the the people who are basically 
assigned the task of actually doing the face-to-face killing. And I think you have a different set of dynamics at work there, which is what I tried to to deal with in another book called Ordinary Men, uh, that our vision that all the Nazi killers were these sadistic ideological fanatics uh, simply isn't the case. They Mm. required... uh, participants uh, from all walks of life of all types not just uh, deeply committed nazi zealots to carry out the killing process yes that's a really great point and um, you highlighted the fact that as you're saying um, hitler didn't really necessarily be wasn't a a command and control leader Um, he was signaling what he liked or didn't like based on what various functionaries were doing Um, but you also said or wrote uh, in one of your essays that um, in his function as arbiter, Hitler in turn sought to avoid totally antagonising or alienating any of his close followers, even the most incompetent among them, such as Rosenberg and Ribbentrop. Yeah, uh, basically uh, Hitler is trying to be the Teflon dictator as he yeah. doesn't want to make decisions that anger any of his various constituencies. And, and the Nazi movement is a coalition of discontents. He puts together different people that had different grievances. Uh, and he does often the difficulty in governing is that if you choose to solve one problem, you're going to alienate somebody else. One of the reasons the Nazi movement becomes so deadly against particular groups, uh, Jews, gypsies, or Roma and Sinti, asocials, are the people who had no clout, had no, no say in the system, mm. uh, or the populations of occupied countries. All those that had no purchase within the Nazi system are the expendable ones, the people in which uh, you can radi- against which the system can radicalize very rapidly, even if it remains in gridlock in trying to solve other problems that would pit Germans against Germans. So you create this sense of accomplishment, this sense of historic... Uh, uh, achievement by unloading, in effect, on the most vulnerable sectors of European society. Yes, and a lot of people might find it difficult to understand how uh, the general German population might have gone along with something that even at the basic level discriminated against Jewish businesses, the you know people on the street, that kind of initial level of discrimination that was put into law uh, against Jews and then the growing violence that was more and more visible. Um, it's kind of hard to understand the acceptance of that. In terms of reading the primary documents, I found it interesting that a lot of German Jews often didn't have perceived themselves as Jewish. They perhaps had a background, a family background that was Jewish, but that wasn't kind of their sole driving part of their identity and probably identified more as German than they did as Jewish if they had to to choose. But a lot of the um, the interesting work that George Moss has done is around um, how the Jews were portrayed and the cultural elements around the Third Reich. Um, and I was interested in this relevance in, in relation to how your ordinary men might have perceived the enemy, so to speak. Um, and how did the, the, the Germans... Um, the German population, but particularly now moving into your key book, um, Ordinary Men, Reserve Police Battalion 101 and the Final Solution in Poland. How did those ordinary men who were co-opted into the reserve police view the enemy um, in inverted commas? And, you know, presumably the majority of them were Jews in Eastern Europe. 
Yeah, let me back up just yeah. a little bit uh, and pick up a couple of, on a couple of things that you said earlier. All of European society had a anti-Semitic tradition. That mm. is, for 2,000 years, there has been a Christian-Jewish adversarial relationship. Uh, and certainly, over from the Middle Ages on, this often took the form of a very broad, negative stereotype. People talked about the Jew, uh, or the Jews, as if they're all the same, mm. and attributed to them essential negative characteristics. So this is the way, this is embedded in European culture. So it's not just Germans, but Europeans in all countries that could have heard things said about Jews that would not have set off alarm bells, would not have raised red flags. Uh, it was, in fact, considered the common sense, really, of the time that, one, Jews were different, and two, they were different in a bad way. <laughs> uh, so that's a sort of a broad background. When For the Nazis, uh, this, of course, is a great priority and something that they're deeply obsessed with. It's not just a problem, it is the essential problem in society. Many Germans never bought into that, but nonetheless, none of the red flags went up that said anybody that obsessed with this, there must be something dangerous and wrong here. Uh, so that the Nazi priority in being obsessed about Jews didn't ring the alarm bells, uh, didn't alert Germans to the dangers of Nazism in that regard because they were relatively indifferent to the fate of Jews, didn't sympathize or identify with them, no sense of solidarity with them, so that Nazis could proceed against Jews with a kind of open field. And as one historian said, you know, many Germans became anti-Semites because they became Nazis far more than anti-Semites became Nazis because they were anti-Semites. Hitler's success gives him the Leeway gives him, in a sense, the the freedom to intensify persecution against Jews, mm-hmm. which then uh, becomes a kind of vicious circle. The more you persecute, the more you exclude. The less Germans know any Jews, the more they're isolated. By the time German Jews were put on the trains to the death camps, they really have been so isolated that most Germans have not had any contact with them for five years. I mean, the, the Nuremberg Laws are in 1935. You can't socialize with, the, with between Germans and Jews without endangering yourself of being accused of having illegal sexual relations. Uh, so that, uh, and then of course by 38, they've taken away all their property. You can't even shop at a Jewish store because there aren't any Jewish stores. So the Jews have been really totally isolated by then, and, and Germans simply aren't in contact with them as human beings, they simply have a vision in their mind of what the regime has increasingly painted them as. As one of the policemen who gave an interview that I was working, materials I was working with, says, you know, anti-Semitism was simply the the, the air we breathed. Uh, It was very hard to step outside that, get out of the bubble. Mm. By after the Nazis had been in power for, for by then, by nine or ten years, and have any outside Yardstick by which to measure how crazy things had gotten. Uh, so that, uh, and then you add to that, of course, they're at war, their natural instinct. Of course, you serve your country in war, you're sent to an occupied territory, you're amidst a hostile population, uh, your group is your social world. Uh, if you alienate your comrades, there's no other place to turn. People will do in that circumstance, just like American troops in Vietnam, German reserve police in Poland will do things there they would never do back in Hamburg or an American wouldn't do back in San Diego. Uh, And so you're talking about an environment, a setting 
that uh, is going to be very different. It's wartime, it's occupation, you're isolated, you, you feel a sense of beleaguered. The, the population out there is, quote, the enemy. Uh, and, and that, I think, is, is part of the background we have to understand of why when a unit like Reserve Police Battalion 101 is given orders to kill, most of the men comply. Now, the, the, there were several things about that unit that made it a very key case study. Uh, unlike many of the killing units, it was not recruited out of the SS. It was not recruited out of highly Nazified people. It was not recruited out of younger populations socialized in a Hitler school, you know, Nazi educational curriculum in the Hitler youth. These were middle-aged men. Uh, average age 39 and a half were not conscripted for, for wartime duty until 1942 uh, so that their formative period is the Weimar Republic not Nazi period they were mostly working class that's a social class that was more highly supportive of socialists and the communists the, the two groups remained in opposition to Hitler rather than other parts of the population that were so, were captured by the Nazis in higher percentages. And they came from one of the cities that was the least Nazified city, Hamburg. Nazis referred to as Red Hamburg. It was a city where they had trouble with. So if you were trying to choose a group of people least likely to be killers on behalf of the Nazi regime, it would be middle-aged working-class men from Hamburg. This is stacking the deck. It's not just a cross-section of German society. This is stacking the deck against the probability they would become Nazi killers. They have very little time for indoctrination, very little time for training. Uh, They are assembled and sent off to Poland, unlike earlier killing squads, who did have quite a bit of indoctrination, quite a bit of exposure as the ruling master race in Eastern Europe over subject populations before they begin to actually murder people in large numbers. Uh, And were composed of fairly high percentages of Nazi party members. This battalion was not. So for that reason, that's one reason why they're very key, that Mm -hmm. that they demonstrate what a unit can do even if it doesn't have high percentage of Nazis, even if it isn't carefully selected, even if it isn't from a more youthfully, more Nazified age group, uh, even if it doesn't have special training, even if it doesn't have extensive indoctrination. And the second key thing is that before the first killing, the major assembles the men outside the village where they're going to carry out this massacre and basically says, those of you who don't feel up to it, you can step out. No one was coerced. They all knew that they didn't have to shoot. Uh, And some of them turned in their rifles immediately. Others, during that massacre or thereafter, uh, would say, I can't shoot any longer. So it was the unwritten rule of the battalion that anyone who didn't want to be a trigger puller could exempt himself, and no sergeant or corporal or lieutenant could force them to do that because they knew that the major had, had basically set the policy that... People were not to be forced to shoot if they didn't feel they could do it. So it's that combination of those two factors. Mm. Uh, And then you add to that, this was a unit that once it began killing, was involved in either shooting or sending to Treblinka 83,000 people. 500 men had a body count of 83,000. So it, it, it destroys that whole notion that only special sadists and only special Nazi zealots uh, and only people specially prepared and specially selected can do this kind of thing. You can, in fact, mobilize 
ordinary people and in certain circumstances turn them into professional killers and that's what the story of that unit was about yes it it is pretty shocking and the way that you describe it it is so unlikely that the rate of people who did participate was so high i believe was it around 80 percent yeah my estimate was that there was that about 80 percent actually continued to pull the trigger about 20 percent uh either the first day or very soon thereafter said i can't do this and took advantage of the major's offer they continued for the most part to continue to do supportive things that is they would still round up jews out of their homes take them to the marketplace drive them to the train put them on the death trains to treblinka uh, or form the cordons that would surround the shooting sites even if they didn't do the shooting but they wouldn't be the person who actually pulled the trigger and just that degree of division of labor just doing everything except actually pulling the trigger gave them a sense of distance from what was happening Mm. and a sense that they weren't responsible someone else was doing it Uh, so we also discovered out of this how effective division of labor is in ameliorating the sense of responsibility in what you're participating in Yes, and certainly you highlight some of the quotes from their interviews with uh, police when they're being interviewed some 20 or so years later. Um, And some of them say that they were, I guess, belittled or called names by their fellow um, policemen and were, I guess, aware of the social outcast status they might receive if they were too clearly distancing themselves from i guess the dirty work so to speak of of actually doing it because these other men were doing it the majority were and um a lot of those men you know utilizing alcohol um and other things to get through that and then these other men you know loitering around markets or standing by the the cars guarding cars was that part of the reason why um more men perhaps took part because they didn't want to be seen as an out in yeah, the outer? Yes, I, I think certainly peer pressure and desire to not be considered weak by your comrades, to be cons- to be v- viewed as someone who is doing your share. I mean, the, the battalion has this dirty work to do, and they view it as dirty work, uh, except for some of the real zealots who, mm. who get high on killing people, who actually learn to enjoy killing. The most of the people shooting still consider it dirty work. Uh, and those who exempt themselves then are are shifting the dirty work to others. So if the vast majority of the evaders, the 20% that wouldn't pull the trigger, uh, the way in which they negotiated this was to say, I am too weak. They didn't say the policy is immoral. They didn't say the regime is doing a terrible thing. They didn't say this is cold-blooded murder. Uh, Basically, they took upon themselves the onus of saying they were too weak, which perversely legitimized the behavior of the tough killers as being the desirable thing that real men would want to be able to do, even if they came up short and had to accept the stigma of being too weak to do it. Mm. So perversely, in letting themselves out, they were still validating what the battalion was doing. Uh, Now, we know in other cases, when people said they wouldn't shoot, an individual could get away with it. The line you could not cross was to try to persuade others not to shoot. So if you if you said, I can't shoot, 
generally that was okay. But if you either proclaimed the policy as immoral uh, or you tried to persuade others to join you, then you crossed the line, and that's when uh, real pressure would be exerted uh, upon you. You wouldn't be court-martialed for disobeying an order. No one wanted in a court martial a public you know examination of i couldn't shoot on you know helpless women and children you would be court-martialed for subversion of morale you were trying to persuade others not to to follow battalion policy uh so uh, the people who evaded in a sense had a fairly narrow uh, needle to thread uh that would allow them both to remain socially within the battalion and not uh, punished, uh, but still have uh, create the space in which they wouldn't have to pull the trigger themselves. Yes. Um, and then there were a couple of examples I found um, particularly interesting. You highlighted some that gave great detail in terms of the reasons why they felt freer to decide not to take part. And one um, was said that they were not a career policeman, did not want to become one, and was rather an independent, skilled craftsman who had a business back home, was thinking about other things, and, you know, it, it probably had less of a um, social investment in that situation than some of the other men who perhaps that was part of their, became part of their identity, or at least having that comradeship. Yes, most of the people drafted into the battalion were unskilled workers. Mm. That is, if they were an engineer building a submarine in Hamburg, they weren't going to be sent to Poland. Uh, But if you were a dock worker or a restaurant waiter or a truck driver or something, well, then you would get drafted because you didn't have an irreplaceable skill. So for them to put on a police uniform and have the prospect of the social mobility that perhaps staying in the police after the war as a much more prestigious profession, career, uh, from being a unskilled worker. Uh, this was, I think, a very uh, important attempt for them, to, in a sense, to... to uh, to make something out of the situation that they were in. And so uh, the temptation uh, to, you know, be the best policeman you could be uh, by the standards with the Nazis considered a good policeman mm. is very great because it might open up the avenues of, of, of what for them would have been an immense step up in their social standing. Yes. And there's one element that is interesting in terms of how... Um, it's all brought together at the context, the cultural context that we're discussing. Um, you wrote a chapter in a book called Visions of Community, which is really about this concept of the Volksgemeinschaft, the national community. And you highlight how that plays a role in these um, battalions of ordinary men and uh, and that, the, that it was part of, one part of many other reasons why um, they were more likely to engage and feel part of a cohesive whole or a bigger picture and that they're part of one group and the Jewish people are part of an entirely other group. Um, Could you share with us how that did play a role and what what to you the Volksgemeinschaft meant? Yes, initially the term Volksgemeinschaft has been translated simply as the people's community mm. or the community of the people. Because folk is people uh, in general. But it's a word yeah. that has no, it has so many different shades of meaning that the, that the translated as people uh, simply doesn't capture that. Mm. So it's important to understand how that term 
was transformed by the Nazis and appropriated. At the beginning of World War I, uh, when Germany, before the war, had been very divided and fragmented in society, lots of internal tensions, the government refused to democratize, the largest party were the Social Democrats, but the... Uh, unfair districting meant there were always more votes than they just fewer delegates than the number of votes they had uh, in terms of what they should have had in the Reichstag uh, and excluded uh, from from share of power uh, and so the tensions in society between uh, rural and urban working class and others was very great uh, and at the and also in Germany there had been a long tradition of, of quarrels between Catholics and Protestants so at the beginning of the war uh, Kaiser Wilhelm gives a speech in which uh, as the, when the war declared he says he knows now uh, no parties no confessions no classes only Germans and the, in almost every diary or memoir of that period, this was a moment of brief intoxication of unity, a sense that people really now had overcome their divisions. This was now going to be this great national venture in which everyone was now going to be together. And it wasn't intoxication. They got high on that temporary sense of unity. Well, of course, the burden of the war fractures all of that over time. But the the high was still quite in people's memory. So after the war, different political groups, of course, compete for can they capture that sense of unity again, use that. And the way the Nazis in a, appropriate the term Volksgemeinschaft, the people's community, is to basically turn it from the people's community into the racial community. And that the people will be understood by, by race. So rather than being an inclusive term, it becomes an exclusive term. You define the Volksgemeinschaft by who is not in it and who are not in it are Jews, Roma and Sinti, gays, asocials, uh, handicapped people, all of those that are viewed as blemished and damaged that are not part of this perfect image of the Aryan perfection that, that the Nazis are trying to you know, identify themselves as. So uh, the Volksgemeinschaft then becomes this community defined by who isn't in it. But th- what that also has the effect of, particularly by Nazi is you is your, your obligation is only to your own people, only to your own race. Uh, the notion of universal moral obligation, of equality between peoples, is of course the total anathema of what the Nazis are about. They're about the self-assertion of Germans to rule others, to gain more territory, to grow, and that's only done at the expense of everybody else. Uh, So what you do is you create a kind of public morality of us against them, uh, genocide as self-defense. Everyone is out to get us, and only if we do anything that's necessary to protect ourselves can we survive. And so it creates a situation uh, in which Carrying out, as perverse as this sounds, carrying out the mass murder of people who are of the enemy race is not a crime. They may think of what they're doing as dirty and as unpleasant. They do not think of themselves as criminals. They have divorced, in a sense, the act of murder of Jews and others from a sense of criminality. Uh, And in fact, it's a moral obligation to defend the German folk against all those people that threaten them. Mm. So this ability to create this us-them world. Uh, And most modern genocides are, in fact, justified and carried out as self-defense. 
that we are the, vic- the perpetrators, in fact, say we are the victims. We are the threatened ones. And only if we get rid of this grave danger can we survive. Uh, and in a sense, it was a Nazi appropriation of the Volksgemeinschaft. Turn it into racial exclusivity that exempted all the other populations of Europe as well as the Jews and whatever within Germany from what Helen Fine called the community of human obligation that allows ordinary Germans, ordinary men, in fact, to kill their neighbours and their fellow Europeans. Yes. Well, it certainly is a break from um, traditional practice of war, where in World War I, um, you know, there was still some level of the rules of war in the sense that it was combatant, combatant against combatant. And in World War II, it's entirely transformed, where Germany uh, is attacking not just Russian soldiers, but, of course, Russians and Polish people. These are, as you said earlier, women and children, elderly men. Um, They're not just men of fighting age anymore. So I guess is that um, one way in which you can transform what a soldier might normally perceive to be a civilian who is not part of a traditional war setting as being the enemy? Yes, I mean, uh before the Germans invade the Soviet Union, in fact, Hitler gives to his generals a famous speech in which he says, you must rid yourself of the notion this is a conventional war, that we'll fight it like we did in France. This is an ideological war, this is a race war. Uh, and so it's a war with no holes barred. That and they very explicitly lifted the protections of the civilian population that were part of German martial law that applied to the West had applied to the Western Front because the Soviet Union had not signed the Geneva Convention. Mm. They said that our hands are free. We don't have to do that as either. And of course, then they, in fact, premeditatedly carried out terrible atrocities, uh, blaming it on the Soviet Union as retaliation, but was in fact utterly premeditated and ordered before they even crossed the border. Uh, so yes, they were very clear we were going to fight in Eastern Europe what they called a war of annihilation a race war, an ideological war. The distinction between civilian and combatant simply wasn't there. And it went even further in the sense that the identity of communism has a racial identity. is Jewish communism, Judeo-Bolshevism. The identity of the soldier is also that with the partisan, the, the, the fighter behind the front who's not in uniform, so any civilian can be a partisan, and every partisan can be a Jew. So it's the Jew equals the partisan equals the communist, and you have this whole uh, interlocking set of targets then that basically leaves you free to shoot any, anybody you want. Mm. Uh, and uh, uh, that's certainly how the, the Nazis proceeded uh, uh, in, after the attack on the Soviet Union. Yes. When, of course, the final solution begins. Yes, that's exactly. That's the environment in which the final solution begins. Mm-hmm. Um, and so just closing out on this um, this chapter I guess that we're talking about on ordinary men and the reserve uh, police battalions in terms of because they were part of the Einsatzgruppen or co-opted into it at various points um, we, we know that often those groups that were kind of roaming different countries in Eastern Europe um, would often eventually step back from the shooting or killing themselves and would supervise locals and you know get them to do 
the dirty work um, in inverted commas. Did that happen for the the reserve police's experience? Were there instances where they were um, overseeing or supervising or coercing or forcing locals to do their work, the bad work of mass killing? Dependent geographically. That is, in Poland, the Germans were very worried about Polish resistance, and so you did not create large units of armed Polish auxiliary police. Uh, You did have... Polish municipal police, so-called blue police, they were blue uniforms, who they used for guarding ghettos, who they would enlist to help clear ghettos. But you didn't have large mobile killing units of, of, of Poles. Mm. When you got to the Ukraine, Belarus, Lithuania, Latvia, there, indeed, the Nazis did create an auxiliary police, uh, and they would be supervised by German order police, trained by German order police. Uh, And in many parts then, much of the killing is done by native populations enlisted, armed by the Germans, led by the Germans, but uh, the manpower coming from the the native populations. Uh, And of course, people were also recruited then uh, from the prisoner of war camps. Uh, The Nazis encirclement movements in the year 1941 captured large numbers of uh, Russian prisoners, many of whom they left to starve to death, uh, which they starved in the millions by, by, the, by the spring of 1942, uh, that is barely nine months into that war, over two million Soviet prisoners of war had died. They had a higher body count of Soviet military POWs died at that point than they had killed Jews. A killing of Jews doesn't surpass the number of Soviet POW victims until they begin the assault on the Polish ghettos in the spring of 1942. And then, of course, that number quickly passes uh, the the fatality rate of of Soviet POWs. Uh, But from the POW camps, they would offer so-called borderland populations, Ukrainians, Lithuanians, Latvians, a way out if they would come and work for the Germans. So for many of these people, it was starve or be a a collaborator, uh, and uh, they chose collaboration. Uh, Others volunteered. I mean, we we know that many many of the locals, in fact, rushed to the coming in Germans, greeted them uh, as much preferable to Stalin, uh, and offered to serve the Germans, often under the illusion that this would gain them a path to independence. Hitler had no intention of giving Eastern European peoples independence, but if they wanted to fool themselves, uh, he was perfectly willing to take advantage of that. So you had both volunteers as well as people who came into German collaboration because the alternative was to starve to death in a POW camp or join the Germans. Uh, So it's a whole spectrum of of motives for why uh, large numbers of Ukrainians uh, and Lithuanians and Latvians ended up in the German auxiliary police and provided a fair amount of the manpower uh, for the executions on Soviet territory, not in in Poland. Uh, There, most of the killing was done by the Germans. And Poles had a rather subsidiary role. As I said, the blue police guarded the ghettos. The Germans certainly set up uh, inducements for informers. And so Mm -hmm. for Jews in Poland, the great fear is when they hide, they're going to be informed on and and uncovered. Uh, And that was the the main threat that they felt from their Polish neighbors. Not that their Polish neighbor was going to kill them, but that someone among their neighbors was going to inform on them if their hiding place was discovered.
Yes. Yes, certainly the fear of informing was, you know, in Poland, it was in Germany as well. Regular German citizens worried that any action they might take is looked upon as suspicious. And I can see how that might shut down any kind of dissent or dissenting view as well. Christopher, it's been fantastic to speak with you. I've run out of time, unfortunately, um, but I really appreciate your time and expertise and uh, I'm really glad that you could be able to share three lectures um, at Monash University, public lectures, which are coming up, one tomorrow, um, which starts at 7.30pm at the Caulfield campus at Monash University and it's around humanitarian relief and Holocaust rescue, the story of Tracy Strong Jr. The second lecture is... uh, the use of and um, sorry the use of past and understanding the current crisis of democracy um, which you've written a fantastic article in the New York Review of Books recently on a related topic uh, which certainly draws parallels between Nazi Germany and the Trump administration and then finally um, you're talking about reflections on a career in Holocaust history and you'll also be drawing on the book that we've been discussing Ordinary Men so yeah thank you so much for joining me Christopher and um, good luck with your time here in your lectures. Thank you very much. You've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a show broadcast on 3RRFM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and noon. Thanks for joining me.